Welcome to today's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me as always is Joe Healy, and we're going to be talking a little bit about some of the midweek action from around the country this week. Things got a little wild on Tuesday, several upsets. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the start of the NCAA men's basketball tournament as it relates to baseball. We'll figure that out. Uh, stick with us for that. And then we are going to spend the bulk of this episode talking about what lies ahead this weekend around college baseball, which is an especially loaded one with so many conferences opening conference play, including the Big 12, Pac-12, SEC, Big West, and more. So we have a lot to get to there. First, though, the Baseball America College podcast is presented by RepSoto. RepSoto has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use RepSoto data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The RepSoto National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. You can check out the RepSoto National Player Database at repsoto.com slash national database. All right, Joe, we're, we're here. It is uh, you know just after St. Patrick's Day, uh, conference play is about to start around the country. That also means that the NCAA men's basketball tournament is starting, that the, those two things uh, happen at the same time every year. So it's uh, it, it makes for a, a bu- busy weekend of sports uh, around the country. And you know I have often wished that maybe they would get this weekend off of the, the this weekend meaning conference conference play beginning for for so many uh teams around the country i wish this would get off of march madness weekend it you know that that kind of swallows up a whole lot of the oxygen in the, the college sports sphere and that is one of the benefits of uh of the new model were that to pass that you know baseball would start after basketball finished but for now that means that uh you know, a lot of people, a lot of fans out there are going to be going to be splitting screens. I, I imagine Arkansas fans, you know, trying to split some time between between baseball and, and basketball and you know, Texas and Baylor. And, you know, so many of these, these top seeded teams are also fielding uh, some pretty impressive baseball teams with uh, some, some some significant action this weekend. I guess we'll uh, yeah, starting with that with the March Madness discussion, I was thinking back to some of my, you mentioned, and we talked off offline about, you know, how, because of the timing of this, like you're now in a place, and I guess to a certain degree I have, but, but more so you have, have not often been in a place in the last handful of years where you can really pay a lot of attention to the NCAA tournament, the first couple of days anyway. But I was thinking back even beyond that, um, do you have, do you have any, any very ingrained memories of your childhood when you're kind of first getting into sports, first understanding the enormity of March Madness and all that? Do you have any memories that are just burned into your brain? Because I've got a couple, but I'm curious if, if you do. No, I was really late to the basketball. Like my basketball, uh, college basketball viewing it came late and uh, has been very sporadic. It's, it's never been the priority. Um, so I... I I have interacted with the tournament much differently than most. And that's probably why it, it has been so easy for me doing this job to just kind of let it fade to the background. And, uh, you know, I, I see the buzzer beaters and, and that's, uh, that's kind of the way I see the tournament these days. Well, I guess, you know, you work in an office where, you know, where we work out here in this area, at least in past years, and we've all been in the office, like we've got so many 
you know, UNC grads or people who are from the area that have those allegiances, like someone has to work during this week, right? So like, it might as well be you, I guess, because nobody else is really probably getting much done with <laughs> UNC and state in the tournament quite often. And so they've got all those, those allegiances. Uh, Duke, of course, but Duke not, uh, it'd be among BA staffers, Duke not well represented as a, uh, as a favored team. We'll, we'll put it that way. I, I have a couple, the Bryce Drew, like Valpo team, um, is one of my earliest college basketball memories. Uh, that that is is very clearly burned in my brain. Specifically, the the Bryce Drew buzzer beater in that game. Then there's kind of a gap. Like I, you know, I continued to watch college basketball, but I think that was the kind of the memory that sticks with me because it was when I realized, like, oh, this is kind of this fun thing where a school like Valparaiso, and at the time I didn't even really know how to say Valparaiso because it was just like a weird word. A school like that can do can do something like this in this moment. And then of course we learn later with Gonzaga, like, okay, a school like this can actually become a juggernaut and we see what they are now. But that, that, that's one that really sticks out more recently. Uh, Ron Hunter, the coach at Georgia state falling out of his chair because he, he'd had some sort of like Achilles injury or something. And his son, RJ was on the team and he hits a buzzer beater on day one of the tournament. I want to say this is like 2014 and he falls out of his chair on the court because he's got his, you know, he just got so excited. And I think that one's always going to stick with me. I also remember the, you know, Butler, Butler Duke final where a uh, half court shot at the buzzer for Butler to win the championship and the, the ball just kind of rims out. And I, ju- I just think about how had that shot gone in, I don't know that it surpasses the Christian Leitner play the famous Christian Leitner play from 92 as the most famous college basketball ending in history, but I got to think it makes a run at it. You know, part of it is because Christian Leitner is just this kind of personality in college basketball lore who was so uh, hated for lack of a better way of putting it by so many others. And it's, 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 you know, uh, it's, it's Duke winning that game. And so there's something in that specifically, but I have to think a half court buzzer beater for a school like Butler to beat Duke uh, is a, is, is the right combination of things that could have made that perhaps the, the, the greatest highlight in the history of college basketball. And of course now we'll, we'll never know. And I think there's beauty in, in that as well. I, uh, I was actually in college for that one in a newsroom in Indiana, Indiana, and uh, probably the person that carried the, the least. So yeah, that's, uh, that's my March Madness. Uh, but every year I do enjoy filling out the bracket uh, for Imagining it if it were baseball teams. And this year I did that uh, just today. And I came out with Arkansas as the champion over Texas, your final four, Arkansas, Texas, Oregon, and Tennessee. So we'll uh, we'll submit that in the old bracket pool and see how it turns out. Probably not that great, but you know, Arkansas and Texas, they are both three seeds. So you never know. Yeah, I mean that that's not bad. I mean, Arkansas and Texas, obviously, that would if that ends up being a final, that would be like a little novel, but it wouldn't be crazy. I mean, those are both fairly historic programs and uh, good program good teams this year. Um, you know, Oregon too is a team that I think, from listening to the the folks who know college basketball way 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 better than I do, Oregon is one of those teams that they think might be a little bit underseeded. So there is something there, and, and Tennessee was a preseason SEC favorite in some places, and they kind of. Uh, fell flat down the stretch. So it's not a team without some high end ability. And I think I saw on 538 a couple of days ago, a study they did. And I did not read it. I just kind of saw the tweet and made a mental note to go back to it, which of course I have not done, but 
that they found that in, in many cases, preseason prognostications are closer to pegging who's going to make runs of the NCAA tournament than the prognostications right before the tournament starts. Now, I did not see what data they were using for that, but I do find that interesting that, you know, that, that maybe suggests that talent wins out in a lot of cases, which is not a surprise, especially to people who cover baseball. But, you know, that, that's kind of my, my quick reaction to that is that it might just be that, you know, these teams that we look at as being really talented in the preseason, you know, end up really kind of winning out because of that in, in, in the end. So that I thought that was kind of interesting. And that just suggests that maybe Tennessee is a little bit of a live dog in, in this tournament. So I, you know, considering you, you did it with baseball in mind, that's really not a terrible final four basketball wise either. Well, uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, you mentioned their preseason prognostications and how that relates to the tournament is, uh, is an intriguing uh, jumping off point here for what happened midweek action in college baseball. Many ranked teams lost on Tuesday. That includes uh, North Carolina to Liberty, uh, Virginia Tech to UNC Greensboro, Louisville at Eastern Kentucky, Arkansas against Oklahoma, uh, Ole Miss at Louisiana Tech, Oklahoma State against Louisiana Monroe, and uh, perhaps most notably, Florida losing to Florida State. And this is significant because Florida is now one and three against Florida State and Miami with one more game against the Knolls to go. That one will be in Gainesville this year. They are not playing three because the third game is traditionally in Jacksonville. And I guess given uh, a little bit of the ACC limiting the number of games that its teams can play and a little bit of the fact that Jacksonville could not have sold as many tickets as they usually sell. And therefore the game would not be as profitable that led to Florida and Florida state just doing the home and home thing this year. So Florida is now, uh, you know, guaranteed barring any postseason meetings, and they're certainly no stranger to postseason meetings against those, those two teams. They're guaranteed a losing record in the regular season, at least, against those two in-state rivals that they have traditionally owned uh, over the last decade under Kevin O'Sullivan. I don't know if that's just a one-off thing. I don't know, you know if there's more to be read into that. Uh, Florida State did, of course, end the season last year beating Florida in Gainesville in what turned out to be the final game in McKeithen Stadium history. So maybe Florida State is catching up a little bit. That is, you know, as we've talked about before, the like that is that is a huge part of the job right now for both Gino Damare and Mike Marin Jr. as they you know take over the these programs over the last couple of years is finding a way to close the gap with Florida. And it remains to be seen whether this year is is aberrational, whether this first month of the season even is aberrational, perhaps Florida will catch fire and, and go and uh, you know finish the season the way that we thought they could coming into the year. But it, it is an interesting thing that has happened uh, over the last you know few weeks here that, that Miami won in Gainesville and now Florida State, uh, after losing something like 14 of their last 16, has now won back-to-back games against the Gators. Yeah. And it's, you know, credit to you because I, you know, we, we sent messages back and forth on Slack last night during and after this game. And 
you know, I, I made the joke about how all it took was, was Florida having its, its best team in, in a long time, um, at least predicted that to be that in the preseason for Miami and Florida state to really wake up against this team. And you made the point that, well, you know, at, at this stage, I think we have to really look at that critically and really think about whether or not this actually is the best team they've had in a while. Cause the results don't show that. And, you know, it's not just losing an ugly series to Miami and, and losing, just really getting trounced by Florida state, um, which by the way, you know, Florida state having Carson Montgomery as a midweek guy is a little bit of a cheat code. Um, if he's, throwing well, I mean, so. If they wanted him to, if he was capable of pitching on the rotation right now, he would be like, they've tried that. It, they, they moved him there for a reason. Sure. Yeah. But, uh, you know, he certainly. And also a, you're talking about Florida who not that long ago had Jackson Coar as a midweek starter indeed. or Dane Dunning, you know, like if anyone's used to cheat codes in the midweek, it's UF. Indeed. But, you know, Carson Montgomery, uh, pretty high ceiling for, for, for a midweek guy. You don't typically see arms like that in the midweek against just anybody. But my larger point I'm making too, is that, you know, it was kind of easy to, you know, just look at after Florida had the series against Miami, they were winning games and it's kind of easy to just say, okay, you know, Florida looks back on track and, you know, we could kind of nitpick some of these scores here, but now through the lens of the series lost to Miami, a loss to Florida state in the way they lost. Now you start to like look a little more critically at some of the other things they've done. Like, you know, Florida Atlantic, a team that has all kinds of trouble holding any offense down holds Florida to two runs and 10 innings in a midweek loss earlier this season. And, you know, we didn't talk about it on our recap podcast, but man, did they play with their food against Jacksonville last weekend, a Jacksonville team that came in really scuffling and Jacksonville wins a game against their bullpen on Friday and, you know, goes tied two to two into the middle innings on Sunday. And was just a, you know, a couple of clean innings here and there from, from really pushing to win that series in Gainesville. So now you know, you, you start to, it's still early enough to where like, we'll just have to see Florida could get it going. You're right. But now I think it is fair at this point to start looking back at some of these, these little nitpicks we had before with, well, they didn't really dominate this team. And now they dropped a weird game here and really start to project a little bit to, do we have to readjust some of our expectations for the Gators moving forward? I think, you know, one thing that went wrong with our preseason, uh, you know, I don't want to say coronation because that makes us look terrible, but like basically our preseason coronation of Florida is that they finished last year, 16 and one and ranked the number one team in the country. It was, you know, right now when the season got canceled a year ago, it was on the eve of the sec play beginning. Florida was supposed to play Georgia that weekend in Gainesville. I was going to be there. I've said that probably 10 times on this podcast now since it happened. It was going to be very educational. Florida had rolled through a good schedule to that point. They went and they swept Miami in Miami. That was a really good Miami team. Like, look at the draft results to bear that out. Look at what Miami's doing this year to bear that out. So it wasn't like Florida didn't earn that. But at the same time, if you go back and you read what I wrote about Florida at that time, I wrote, you know, in the wake of the the cancellation, I I had nine questions that we'll never know the answer to because the season got canceled. And one of those questions was like, was Florida going to go win the national title? And totally unknowable. But there were question marks about the team. There were things they hadn't proved yet. And, you know, you can't forget that it was not that far removed from a disappointing 2019 season for the Gators. So 
I don't know if what happened there is they just got hot for a few weeks, played over their heads, and that gave us a elevated impression of Florida. I don't know if Florida is just not living up to expectations right now. There are a number of reasons why that could be. Uh, you know, I perhaps they'll lock in down the stretch. You know, we'll just have to see. But you know, right now, Hunter Barco doesn't look like the pitcher he did a year ago. Um, you know, the bonded bullpen that I talked about as being the best in the country. And like, I didn't even need to look at who else could, could be like, eh, it's not, it's not so hot right now. Uh, you know, Christian Scott looks great. Um, they, they have, you know, Brandon Sproat has pitched pretty well. Chase Centella has pitched better than I would have expected him to, but, you know, Franco Alamon hasn't pitched amazingly. Ben Specht hasn't been what we thought he'd be. They're missing a couple guys due to injury. Timmy Manning hasn't been good as a freshman. Like, you know, they're fighting some things there. And, uh, you know, they've got to get that fixed as they get into SEC play here. And, you know, you, you look at the offense and, you know, I never was as bought into the offense as you'll have found some other people uh, in the preseason. But, you know, I also would have thought that they'd be a little bit better than they are to this point. So, We'll see where they go as SEC play starts. They aren't the only ones that took disconcerting losses yesterday. Um, you know, Ole Miss has now lost a couple in a row. Arkansas has lost a couple in a row. You know, Joe, the, the one other thing I wanted to touch on here is Louisiana Tech really took it to Ole Miss, 13-1. Uh, to 1. They now have back-to-back wins against Ole Miss and Arkansas. Um there was supposed to be another game against Ole Miss in that La Tech series or for La Tech in that midweek. Uh, some COVID contact tracing protocols are made it so that they shortened that series to, to one game, I guess, because Ole Miss didn't have enough pitching uh, to play to in the midweek. But, you know, La Tech, as they go into Conference USA play, which doesn't start this weekend, but, but as they start getting ready for it, um, you know, we, we've had FAU ranked, we had Southern Miss as the favorite coming into the year, like the third team lurking in all of that is La Tech. And Joe, as our CUSA expert, where do you see the Bulldogs in that pecking order right now? Yeah, I mean, they, they might be the best of the bunch with what we've seen, because one of the, the, the big limitations you see with teams from leagues like Conference USA is that they, they sometimes, I mean, they'll occasionally pick off a midweek game like this, but do you have the talent to win against a team's best guys? And sure, the, the, the win against Arkansas was on a, a Sunday and it was an early start and it was a getaway day. And there are all kinds of reasons why you can kind of excuse it from Arkansas's standpoint, but they're able Except to- Except that they got two hit. Right, exactly. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I feel like those like uh, excuses are at all legitimate, but you know- if you're really looking for reasons why you can excuse it, I'm sure you can find those, but you're right. They got two hit a great game by Jarrett Wharf, but they're able to do that and then turn around on the midweek and do that to Ole Miss. And sometimes with teams from leagues like conference USA, you're kind of playing an either or game. There are some teams who play pretty well in the midweeks and they, they tend to kind of align things to take their shots at teams in the midweeks and they get up for those games. And so the idea that they were able to do that back to back is pretty, impressive to me because sometimes it kind of feels like, like I said, an either or where you, okay, you know, we're going to give this team a good shot on the weekends. We're going to try to to pick one off here. Let's do everything. Let's throw everything we have at this. And then the midweeks we'll just, we'll roll the dice and see what we got. But 
they, they obviously can have their cake and eat it too. Uh, you know, this is a team that I really liked from the preseason. And I think just as telling as the fact that they could knock off Arkansas and Ole Miss is the fact that the, the weekend prior to Arkansas, they played McNeese state. And I think McNeese state is a, you know, I like La Tech a little bit better. They're in a better league. Uh, you know, they're, they're a little more proven, especially on the mound. But those are fairly comparable teams in terms of what I think they could be capable of. I think if, if it's a good year in the Southland, and I don't think it is, by the way, that's a, a discussion for another, another podcast. But if, if it was going to be a year when the Southland could get an at-large team, I think McNeese is talented enough to be that team if things broke right. Um, and so I think it's pretty comparable. And they really – there was a tight game on Saturday in that series, but otherwise they really took it to McNeese in a really emphatic way. And so – you know, this, this team might be the best one. Um, I think they're certainly, I think they're most consistent. Um, Southern Miss has been, has kind of a weird season. They've had injuries that have been difficult and we're still waiting on, you know, the offense to really be its fully formed self. There's certainly doesn't seem to be a Matt Walner in the Southern Miss lineup, at least not so far. And I think FAU, I think we've seen exactly what FAU is and whether or not that's going to be good enough to be a postseason team or compete at the top of CUSA, I guess we'll find out, but we have a very clear idea of what FAU is and Louisiana Tech can beat you in a couple ways. We've seen that they've got a great offense, super veteran offense, uh, really physical in a lot of places, but every guy in their lineup can beat you with a home run and just about every guy in their lineup can steal bases and the pitching staff. It's not super elite stuff, but it's a lot of really old pitchers who have been around for a long time and, and know how to get outs. And um, I think they're really well positioned to have a good run in CUSA and it, it wouldn't shock me at all if they end up winning the regular season title when it's all said and done. It'll, uh, it'll be something to watch. It's uh, it's an intriguing team. We've, we've known that since the start of the season. Uh, now they, after scuffling a little bit, they, uh, they've found their stride at a very opportune time. Uh, so that, that is something to watch as conference USA play approaches. We're going to get to the top series of the week to watch here. Uh, going to run down some of them and uh, talk about the keys for for teams to to win those series. And in this case, they're all they're all conference series, so it's going to be uh, it'll all mean a little bit more this weekend. Uh, so we'll get to that here in a second. But first, check this out. All right, Joe, we're here to talk about the weekend's best series. We got a lot of great ones on tap. Thank you to all other conferences or so many of these conferences for beginning conference play. We talked about it before, how thankful we were that the ACC started and Big Ten joined. And uh, now we're, we're going to get uh, most of the other big ones underway this weekend. So a lot, a lot of good stuff to choose from here. Uh, where I want to start us, though, is, uh, well, okay, let, let's just go with, we, we talked about Florida State and how Florida State got, got the big win on Tuesday against Florida. Talked a lot about what, what that meant for the Gators, not so much about what it meant for the Seminoles. This weekend, though, they're going to ride that momentum into a series against Miami. Uh, that is fifth-ranked Miami. Florida State themselves unranked despite winning a series last week against Virginia Tech. Uh, they are not far out from the rankings, uh, but they are just seven and six and four and five in the ACC. They could really use something this weekend. I wish 
this series were a little later in the calendar. I wish they could have built to this a little more. Uh, and again, that it wasn't going to get swallowed up potentially by the basketball tournament. Florida State is in it. Miami is not. But, uh, you know, I, I just wish this series could get a little more of its due. That said, it is one of the great rivalries in college baseball. We will take it when we can get it. And uh, this this weekend should be a pretty good one. Miami comes in at eight and four. They seem to have righted the ship since losing that first ACC series at home to Virginia Tech. Uh, and this is another, a chance for them to, you know, kind of prove that they are uh, one of the, the true ACC, ACC contenders and also stake a claim as the best team in the state of Florida this year. Uh, you know, stake a really strong claim having already won a series against the Gators. Yeah, it's a good point. I hadn't actually thought about that that angle of it, but yeah, this is a really important series. I think Florida State with a, with a series win here could go a long way towards, you know, really putting the way they started ACC play in the rearview mirror to some degree because uh, that was just so rough. Um, and since then, they've got on track a little bit, but and that the Florida win in the midweek certainly I think helps uh, from, from a confidence standpoint, if nothing else. I think it's important there, and and you know I'm with you on. Miami as well. It, it feels like this is this is one of those those series where yes, we have Miami ranked highly, as a matter of fact, and, and Florida State is not. But it, but it does feel like a series where there's a very real scenario where these two teams end up kind of at the end of the year meeting a little bit in the middle of of where they are now uh, because there are still a lot of questions with with Miami, even though we still have them ranked as high as as we do. That questions about um, you know the pitching staff in particular, um, you know. Uh, Alejandro Rosario has been just about anything, everything they could have asked for him, but it hasn't been as easy for Victor Medeiros. Um, moving Daniel Fetterman into a starting role has not gone super great. He's had moments where he's been better than others. Well, I'm wondering what they're going to do because last week he did not pitch because they only used two starters and they used right. the two freshmen because they didn't play that third game against uh, Wake Forest. Yeah, I would be – I mean – I mean, I guess this has maybe been the idea with Daniel Fetterman all along. Like, I, I can't imagine they'd take someone who is a converted reliever and really expect him to go out there and be a horse. I mean, I think they were probably hoping that would be the case. But, you know, is it you try to do a, an opener thing with Fetterman and, and you just – if he's good through three, you get him out of there? Because he's had good three-inning stretches to start games. He wasn't bad against Florida in his first start through a few innings. So do you – I know they've been kind of piggybacking Jake Garland with him at times, but it's not like Garland has really been – shutting people down necessarily so i mean that really necessarily hasn't necessarily worked a guy you and i talked about offline alex mcfarland has pitched a little bit the last few days he's a guy that has started in the past so are they stretching him out a little bit here but long story short they still have some things to figure out on the mound uh for sure so that is something to continue watching and you know you look at the miami offense and man are they are really, really thankful, one, that Yohandi Morales has been, speaking of freshmen who have been everything they could have hoped, I mean, at the plate, he's been excellent so far for them, team's leading hitter in a lot of different ways. And also very thankful that Christian Del Castillo is related to Adrian Del Castillo, because he, if, if it's not Yohandi Morales, Adrian or Christian Del Castillo has perhaps been the most consistent hitter they've had. He's been pretty good this year. So those two guys have really done a lot of heavy lifting because Adrian Del Castillo has, has been – uh, just kind of okay. Uh, Alex Terrell uh, isn't really hitting with the power that we would have expected him to be hitting with at this point in time. And, and then you got guys like, like Raymond Gill, who 
had some big hits, but has not been, uh, has not gotten regular playing time and has been inconsistent in his opportunities. So the offense just hasn't been quite as explosive as I think we thought it might be. And I think it's one of the, been one of the issues. And truthfully, you could kind of say the same thing about Florida state. Um, you know, if you take out Tyler Martin and, you know, in the power with which Robbie Martin and Matt Nelson are hitting, there's not really a lot there necessarily. And Elijah Cabell struggling has been a big part of that. He's kind of fallen out of even regular playing time. Um, so that that's a concern there. So this is not a Florida state offense we're used to seeing struggling the way it has. And, and maybe they're starting to come out of some of that, but it's definitely, when you look at the, the stat sheet there for either of these offenses, it's not exactly what we would have expected. Yeah, I mean, Florida State has even gone to the length of putting Parker Messick, their Friday starter, in a DH. Um, and uh, so that, uh, that's an intriguing development. He's five for has, nine, so score. Yeah, it's gone well so far. <laughs> and, and Wyatt Crowell, who has been more pitcher than hitter to this point, like he's also in there and he's three for seven now. So I don't know how long that's going to go for. It's not. That is not unusual necessarily for Florida State to, I shouldn't say out of nowhere, but like Parker Messick hadn't really been, like I don't think he hit at all last year as a freshman. He wasn't starting the year hitting and like, ah, let's let's give it a go. Like give him a bat, see what he can do. Like I feel like uh, that that's happened before in Tallahassee. So, you know, if Messick is going to, keep doing something. And he already has a home run in those nine, those first nine ABs. He's already got a home run. So if, uh, if he's going to keep hitting, that could be something, but you know, for the most part, they're going to need Robbie Martin, Matt Nelson, Reese Albert, those guys to maybe not so much on Nelson. He does have the five homers. He's hitting fine for a catcher, but, but especially Martin and Albert and, getting Cabell to figure something out, like that would all be be pretty significant because Tyler Martin is the only Florida State regular hitting above 300. He is hitting above 400. Uh, and just as importantly, he is an on-base machine. Like that's really what Tyler Martin does really well. Uh, but they need they need some of their, their other stars uh, to start playing like stars. And if they do that this weekend, it would be, it would be huge for them because, you know, it's uh, – like you mentioned, Joe, it's it's an interesting pitching staff right now. I don't really know what to make of it. The freshmen have been mostly good. Carson Palmquist has been great at the back of the bullpen. Uh, but I, I think Florida or not Florida State, I, I think Miami is still trying to figure some things out on the mound. So, you know, this weekend, I, I think the key for, for Miami is finding, uh, you know, someone to join with Rosario and Medeiros. And, uh, and and McFarland to an extent, and, and certainly Palmquist as reliable pitchers that they can turn to game in and game out in some of the bigger moments. And, and for Florida State, it's it's got to be getting some of these uh, more more famous hitters on track and, and producing at, in consistent ways, not just hitting home runs, uh, you know, like like they've done some to this point, but consistently getting on base and being productive. You know, I totally agree there. I mean, that's because a pitching staff can work around. If you're just asking them to work around Tyler Martin and to, to a little bit lesser degree, Robbie Martin and, and Matt Nelson, like the pitch, good pitching staffs can do that. So they are going to need someone to um, to step up there. You know, I think Florida State has, has similar questions where they're, you know, you mentioned Carson Montgomery kind of coming and going from the rotation. And 
they've gotten some nice starts has Florida state, but it certainly hasn't been locked down on their side either. The bullpen has been, has been quite good in a lot of places, but um, starting rotation wise, it, it, it hasn't been a lockdown situation there either. So, the, I mean, this could be one where maybe both offenses come out of this weekend feeling a little bit better about themselves than they have. And, and maybe that both teams feel pretty good about that when it's, when it's all said and done. But I mean, that's another thing for Florida state, I think is as much as Miami is, um, you know, getting their starting rotation where they feel like it's in a, in a good place because so far it's been, it's been okay. It hasn't been bad, um, but it also probably isn't exactly where they would, they would like to have it. All right, let's, uh, let's shift gears and let's go to the big 12. Uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier in the week, the big 12 coming in with a soft opening this weekend, just two conference series, but it includes a big one. And that is number 25, Oklahoma State, headed to Lubbock to play number seven, Texas Tech. Texas Tech, since starting the season 0-3 in the State Farm Showdown at Arlington, they have won 14 straight games. And while the competition started a little suspect in that 14-game winning streak, it's gotten tougher of late. They just finished off a four-game sweep of UConn on Monday when they hit three straight home runs to start at the bottom of the 10th inning to, to walk off with a win there. Uh, Oklahoma State comes in looking at its wounds a little bit, having you know just lost that series against, uh, against Vanderbilt in Stillwater and then losing that midweek game uh, also in Arlington, which uh, just continues not to be a great place for Big 12 teams uh, to play. Uh, that was UL Monroe beating Oklahoma State in the midweek. So they come in at 11-3-1, and they frankly really need to prove something here. To this point, you can point to some nice things on their schedule. They uh, they beat Wichita in a weird opening weekend uh, situation when you know Wichita State was, was punting for, for some games, as was Oklahoma State. I, I don't know how much can be read into to that. Uh, and then, you know, Illinois State, solid, but not having a great start to the season against really tough competition. Don't know what to make of that. Can say some similar things about Grand Canyon. And then, you know, what happened against Vanderbilt, we detailed earlier in the week. So now they they have they have a chance to make a statement here to start Big 12 play. The bad news is they have to do it in Lubbock, and you just don't beat Texas Tech in Lubbock. Yeah, that's absolutely true, and it feels a little like Texas Tech is – you know, it's easy to say because the competition hasn't been particularly good, although UConn has talent and that's, you know, I'm probably not giving UConn enough credit, even though it's still an open question, just how good UConn is, but even UConn's worst case scenario is, is still, still good enough to, to test the team. And it feels a little like, yeah, Texas I, I will just say UConn four and 10 right now. Yeah, no, you, you would have liked I mean, the, really tough, really tough schedule. UConn yep. four and 10 right now. You would have liked them to have won more games. That is absolutely true. But it does feel like Oklahoma, or Oklahoma State, Texas Tech has gotten its mojo back a little bit. Uh, certainly that that Monday game, three consecutive home runs to, to walk off with a win was uh, your boy Joe turned that game on just in time, uh, saw that happening. So uh, that was kind of fun to see. So, uh, you know, maybe it's the kind of deal where, where Texas Tech, kind of like we talked about with Texas, where they've, they've kind of flushed that first weekend and, and they're off and running now. Texas Tech does this kind of thing every year where they usually have one good weekend where they, they really challenge themselves. And I guess in this case, depending on what you feel about UConn, certainly when they were scheduling UConn, they probably felt like, okay, we've got two weekends like that in non-conference play. 
but they so better than that they typically a little bit softer in non-conference play and they they beat up on that so they did what they were supposed to do there i think it's big for oklahoma state to get to patrick monteverde a little bit and i'm actually interested to see patrick monteverde in, in big 12 play because he's been really really good for texas tech and you know we've talked a lot about what does texas tech's pitching look like and i'm trying to just kind of continually come to terms with the fact that they're probably not going to ever be the team that has a ton of solid roles, but he's gotten as close as anybody in a while at Texas tech to truly being that kind of, that kind of workhorse, I guess it, it this early in the season anyway. So I'm, I'm curious to see what he does against a little bit better competition, but I think if Oklahoma state can do to him, what they did on Sunday against Vanderbilt's non rocker and lighter pitchers, I think it really doesn't you know whether Tech starts Monteverde on Friday or Saturday. We'll have to see. But I think Texas Tech is a little more vulnerable if you're able to get a short start out of Monteverde because if he goes seven, they're in pretty good shape because they're used to playing bullpen games fairly regularly. But I think if you can get a short start out of him and force him out of the game, it puts Tech in a, a much more vulnerable position for a pitching standpoint than maybe you can get to a little bit of the soft underbelly of a pitching staff that – it's still coming together in, in a lot of spots. Uh, you know, Tech's team era is close to four, which is which is good, but not great. So you can get to them a little bit, I think, still. So I think that's I think that's huge for them. Um, I think on the flip side, though, I think this is an opportunity for, you know, Texas Tech. If, if they're throwing the ball well, this, this again, is, is the type of offense in Oklahoma State where uh, they do go into funks. They tend to be a little bit streaky and maybe – you know, although it's not great evidence with the ULM loss, but, you know, I was thinking maybe 10 runs against Vanderbilt on Sunday, maybe gets them going a little bit, uh, but maybe quite, quite the opposite based on what we saw against ULM. So we'll have to see, but I think that's the matchup here is what can the Oklahoma state offense do against the Texas tech pitching staff? Because I can truly see that situation going either way. I'm really interested to see what Oklahoma state does with, uh, with its pitching this weekend. We don't have a rotation yet. Uh, Justin Campbell had been outstanding in three midweek starts to start the year. Um, at one point, he was leading the nation in strikeouts last week, and you know before the weekend started, um, he's allowed one run in 17 innings. He did not pitch this midweek uh, against uh, against Monroe, so is that setting him up to move into the rotation uh, behind Parker Scott? And I would guess Bryce Osmond, uh, or maybe taking Osmond's spot, or are they setting him up to, you know, be something of a swingman or a, or a longer relief guy on the weekend? I don't know. Uh, that is that is something to watch though, because I think that he's going to pitch significant innings uh, as we get into conference play here for the Pokes. I, they uh, they need to find some answers offensively. Um, we talked about how last week was not going to be the time for them to really find those offensive answers. I, th- this weekend, you know, it, Lubbock can play a little bit more uh, offensive than, than, than not. So perhaps this week is, is a chance where they can get something going. Like Joe mentioned, the, the tech pitching staff has not been truly locked down yet. There are some pieces of it that, that maybe can be gotten to, but they're they're going to need to score. The Cowboys are going to need to score because the Ra- the the Red Raiders sure are going to score this weekend uh, in in Lubbock. I, I don't care how good the Oklahoma State offense is, you you're not going to keep the Texas Tech offense down at home. 
not when JC on Cal Conley, Drew Baker are going the way they're going. Um, you know, and I don't even think this Texas Tech offense has truly hit its stride yet because Dylan Noisy, Nate Rombach, they they haven't they haven't hit at the level that I know they're capable of hitting yet. So there's still a level to be found for Texas Tech that they haven't gone to yet. And that's scary. Uh, but, you know, so maybe Oklahoma State can get them this weekend. Maybe this is a good time to get Oklahoma or to get Texas Tech for Oklahoma State. But to do it, I think they're going to have to score runs more than they're going to need their pitching staff to step up because their pitching staff has already done so much for them. Yeah, my, my final word here is that I think it's if Oklahoma State is able to go into Lubbock and win this series, not just because it is so tough to do that, that is also true, but I really do think that would be evidence that well, we might be in for a pretty wild ride in the Big 12. I guess it could also mean that maybe Texas has a little bit easier path, who knows, but if Oklahoma State is able to come in and do something like that, I think that's that's the signal that uh, the Big 12 is going to be a little bit tighter and a little bit crazier than maybe we would have imagined at the start of the season. Yes, I Definitely agree with that. But this is wants to be in that race seriously, and if it doesn't, it doesn't look great for any team to challenge uh, Oklahoma State, except or to challenge Texas Tech, except for Texas. Um, so a big, big one in Lubbock. That's where this one is this weekend. All right, moving on to uh, to the next one. Let's uh, let's save the SEC for last, Joe. Uh, let, let's go west. Let's go to the Pac-12. It's Arizona visiting UCLA. This is a series uh, between two teams ranked in the top twenty-five. But uh, you know, if, if UCLA had just managed to win a Cal Poly this weekend, it would be a little more high-profile. Uh, as it is, UCLA has fallen out of the top twenty, and we talked a lot about them earlier in the week, but this is, this is a really interesting series to me, Joe, because you have Arizona, very, very offensive team going on the road though. And they have to go to UCLA, which is a, a team that has long been known for its pitching. So contrasting styles, also a series that has a lot of PAC 12 implications right out of the gate, just because, you know, if UCLA can get back, to looking the way that we thought they would look coming into the season. If they can do that this weekend, that, I mean, that sends a message to the rest of the PAC 12, I would think that, okay, what you saw over the first month, like, don't worry about it. We're fine. Uh, Whereas if Arizona is able to get UCLA this weekend, first of all, that maybe that establishes Arizona as the leading contender in the pack. And then it also says like things, things might get a little goofy here uh, in this conference race. Agreed. I think it also matters how that happens too, because I think it really does send up some warning flags, warning signals, or whatever you want to say about UCLA. If UCLA gets dragged into a little bit of a mud fight with Arizona, and I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but you know that Arizona is probably not going to go out and throw three shutouts. Arizona also doesn't really, at least at this point, has not fielded the ball particularly well. UCLA has also had bouts of bad defense. Now, on the whole, they are fielding better than Arizona is. And I think it's just a a more, a better defensive group in general at UCLA. But if if this is a series where Arizona, even if they don't necessarily win it, all that would obviously take it to the next level. But if they're able to just kind of drag UCLA into these like eight to seven games where, you know, each team is using five or six pitchers and 
both sides make a couple of errors and there's walks and stuff like that. I think that's a little bit of a warning sign that kind of like what we talked about with Florida, where now you start to go back and look critically at like, sure, UCLA has also lost a couple of weekends, but they really haven't had dominating performances yet either. And maybe we start to reevaluate re our expectations even more so for, for UCLA um, because it's, the thing about it is, is like, I, I think what we're looking for with UCLA because of the fact that it's at home and Jackie Robinson is, you know, typically a, a pitcher's environment, which is also easy to say because UCLA is a pitching team too. So they make it look easy to pitch there a lot of times, but pitcher's environment, especially when it's cooler, uh, I know from experience, it, it can get pretty cool in there, even, you know, in, in the springtime. So, I mean, this really is a weekend where I think there's an opportunity for UCLA to, to get right. Now, Arizona is probably going to tag you for some runs because that offense is that good. But if UCLA can field the ball well um, and really just avoid these big innings uh, against Arizona, I think they're in, in a position where they, they come out of this with a series win and feeling pretty good about it because you know – Arizona, again, is not the team that's going to come in there and have guys throw 14 strikeout shutouts on you two out of three days. It's not Vanderbilt coming in there. So I think UCLA has to feel pretty good. They can score some runs here. And I think as long as they field the ball well and their pitchers are just kind of doing the things they do, they don't need to try to do too much here. I think there's an opportunity for UCLA to get a little right and feel good about this series win if they can kind of just play their baseball and then let, let some of the the shortcomings Arizona has maybe play out over the course of the weekend. You know, I don't know that UCLA has what it takes to play their brand of baseball this weekend. Um, I just don't know. They, they gave up 25 runs in three games at Cal Poly. Cal Poly has a good offense. It's not as good as Arizona's. Yes, it was on the road, but it's not like they went to, uh, you know, Lancaster noted California league, minor league, uh, launching pad, Lancaster. It, it, they weren't playing there last weekend. They were playing in Poly. I was told it was kind of cold and, uh, that it wasn't, wasn't particularly an offensive, great offensive conditions. And Cal Poly put up 25 on this pitching staff. The good news is that UCLA did score a fair number of runs themselves. Um, and I don't know, I don't know how to relate Arizona's pitching staff to Cal Poly's pitching staff, which one's truly better, which one's not, um, you know, Cal Poly has some good arms. Drew Thorpe is really good for the, has been really good for them on Friday. UCLA got to him a little bit, but you know, Petway hasn't been Petway yet since he came back from injury. Um, Sean Mullen has been, has been really good for them, uh, you know, in kind of a hybrid role, but like he's, He's one guy, Jesse Bergen has been good, but you know, he got touched up last weekend. Nick Mastrini has been dominant at times, but, you know, again, got they got to him last weekend. And I don't really see if, if they can't slow down Arizona's offense, which again, may very well be the best in the country. I don't see how they keep up. Kevin Kendall and Matt McClain are really the only two guys hitting. Mikey Perez is the only one with multiple home runs this season. Now JT Schwartz has been a lot, has been very, very good since he came back. Uh, you know, it's a five game sample and he's hitting 550. So like, that's pretty good. Uh, Josh Hahn has been getting incorporated more and he he's been hitting pretty well, but I mean, they still need to find some guys to, to step up next to Kendall and McLean and I guess Schwartz. Um, 
if they don't do that this weekend, I think it's a long weekend for, for UCLA. I, I just don't know. I mean, I, I, I believe in the pitching. I believe in the talent. Uh, but I, I just also believe in what Arizona can do offensively. And, and if it becomes a case where they have to try and keep up, I don't, I don't know that they can do it. Yeah, that's certainly, and that's kind of, I guess my point is that they, they, if it clearly, be, if it becomes a situation and is clear early on in the series that they're just going to have to be in one of these rock fights, like I don't know that they're equipped to do that. One of the interesting things about Arizona's offense, and it is it is fantastic, and, and they play in a ballpark. It's a bigger ballpark, so you typically get a lot of doubles, and if you're a speedy guy, triples in the ballpark. So their offense, you look at it, and the stats may not necessarily scream at you, um, the offensive juggernaut, because the home run totals aren't always there. But that is something to, to monitor, because they, they aren't an offense that um, is hitting the ball out of the ballpark at an absurd clip. And so is it, is it a situation where a team that is more of a doubles hitting team in a ballpark that doesn't quite have the space in the outfield with an athletic UCLA defense, does that neutralize a little bit of what Arizona does? Maybe not. And maybe some of those doubles become home runs in a ballpark that's not as cavernous, right? Like that's also in play here. So one thing that's been different about this Arizona offense, though, too, that's worth mentioning is, is they are walking at an absurd rate. And yes, you know, they did catch – for example, Oklahoma at a bad time when Oklahoma is really going through some stuff on the mound. And so some of those walks were just in these like, you know, games that just really snowballed on teams, but uh, the walk rate Arizona has is really, really absurd. And that's interesting because if there's one thing about UCLA's pitching that, you know, is they typically don't walk people. So uh, really interesting contrast in styles here. So I'm with you. I'm, I'm interested to see how this goes. Um, because again, if UCLA can't kind of do some of these things that they're known for doing, um, I think it would it would really be a tough sign for what we should expect for them the rest of the way. Last thing to watch on this series, UCLA has stolen 21 bases. It's one thing the offense does really well. Arizona likes its catcher, Daniel Susak, but he is a freshman and he has had some freshman moments to this point. Uh, UCLA is going to test him if they can, and they're going to have to find a way to slow down the UCLA uh runners uh because it, th this is an offense that that does steal bases does look to steal bases and anytime you got a freshman behind the plate in his first pac 12 series and it's on the road against the team that wants to run uh that that could spell trouble for the the arizona defense all right we're moving on uh my last pick here is an sec series there are several good ones mississippi state is playing lsu that one that one's attractive you have South Carolina and Vanderbilt. If we hadn't spent a fair amount of time discussing South Carolina and Vanderbilt already on this podcast this week, uh, we would be talking about that one. Uh, my, my quick uh, assessment on that is South Carolina is going to have to find some more offense because Texas, Texas pitching did a really good job of, of neutralizing the Gamecocks hitters uh, last weekend in Austin. And now they have to go play against Kamar Rocker and Jack Leiter. So uh, good luck with all of that. Uh, we will see how it goes. Uh, it, it is going to be a very well-pitched series. Again, remains to be seen what either team is, is able to come up with offensively. We, however, are going to talk about Alabama and Arkansas. I, uh, I'm very interested in this series, Joe, because in Alabama, you have a team that we've ranked in the top 25 all season long. They have not risen above you know, they haven't risen into the top 20 yet, however, because while they've played good teams, they played Wright State, they played McNeese, uh, 
they last weekend played Stetson, uh, who's off to a pretty nice start there in the A-Sun. They're 14-3, and three, but it's without any real statement weekend. And frankly, if we didn't start the season with Alabama ranked number 25, Alabama probably wouldn't be in our top 25. But this is a team that we really like coming into the year, and this is their first significant test. They have started the last two seasons very, very well. They were 16-1 and one when the 2020 season ended. They never got a chance to prove whether that was going to be real or not in SEC play. Now they're off to another nice start, and now they get a chance, an opening weekend of SEC play, to prove just how real they are by going to the number one team in the country. Uh, so this is... This is a big weekend for the Tide. I'm not saying that if they lose this weekend, they, they have lost all credibility as a top 25 team at all. Uh, Alabama is going to be without its ace. Connor Prelip. Connor Prelip was one of the best pitchers in the country last season as a freshman. I would love to see him pitching you know, this weekend. Uh, even without him, though, it's a, it's a very intriguing matchup. And you know it's a big one uh, for, for the Tide and for the Hogs who, again, are coming in having lost back-to-back games against La Tech and then Oklahoma. Yeah, Arkansas played Oklahoma in the midweek and lost that game, but, you know, you and I were texting with someone who was kind of raving about some of the Arkansas arms, and and we've heard a lot of this throughout the season. And And it's true that Arkansas is just running a lot of guys out there, and, like, they all come in just throwing, like, 95 right out of the gate. And... Arkansas is coming dangerously close to being able to just throw 27 guys for 27 outs. And I'd love to see it, frankly, that would be, I think that'd be kind of fun. Um, but that's a lot of pitching changes, but um, yeah, Alabama is a really interesting team because you're right. They, they've just kind of hung around. And I, I've had that thought too, that, you know, if we hadn't ranked them, they probably wouldn't, wouldn't be there. They they've only swept one series, and that was Wright State. They've lost a game. No, I guess they swept the first couple, but they've lost games to College of Charleston. They lost a game to Stetson, almost lost that series uh, to Stetson. They had a, a close game on on Friday as well, uh, on Saturday, pardon me. They won the Friday game. Or, God, I keep getting mixed up there. They lost the Friday game, almost lost the Saturday game. There it is. Needed an extra inning to walk off. Indeed, day. yes, yes. Sometimes I forget, just to peek behind the curtain, as I'm looking up these schedules and stats, sometimes I forget which team's site I'm on. And so like, I'm looking at the L and the W and I forget like who's the L and the W anyway. Um, that's where I get mixed up there, but long story short, Alabama just, they've been pretty good, but they haven't made it look easy. And, you know, not having Connor Prelip is a, is a really big deal. And that's, that's obvious, but you know, I feel like I write it in the top 25 recaps every week that the guys they've had in place have been, pretty good and not necessarily dominant. Uh, Tyler Raz has kind of been the guy who stepped in and, and he's been pretty good. And Antoine John has been there and his numbers are good, but he's hasn't really gotten deep into games and his walks are a little bit concerning so far. And so like you look at the numbers, of their pitching staff and it's a sub three ERA, but I'm just not sure it's a staff that's ready to go play Arkansas and have like a super ton of success. Um, well, here's here's my counter to that. Who on Arkansas is really hitting that well right now? Well, fair. I mean, I, you know, Arkansas has that reputation. Um, but no, you're right. I mean, it's, it's an offense that's hitting below 270 as, as a team. And there's a lot of individual guys who scare you in that lineup. But you look up and down and, and you start to look at guys like, you know, Cullen Smith, who, you know, a transfer who I thought was going to be 
a, a big time game changer there. And, and he's getting on base at a 400 clip, but he's hitting 244. And Caden Wallace is hitting 245. And, you know, Matt Goodhart, who, you know, came into the season a little late, but he's nine games in now and is hitting 250. And Christian Franklin, 255. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Um, you know, they've had some moments, you know, Robert Moore has played hero a number of times for this team and he's off to a nice start, you know, Brady Slavens too, but, but by and large, you're right. It, it is an offensive, isn't a hundred percent clicking on all cylinders. It doesn't seem like. Yeah. It's uh it's an interesting team, Arkansas. Um, I wrote after they won in thrilling fashion at La Tech on Friday night, that this is the most exciting team in college baseball. But part of the reason they're most exciting, you know, part of the reason they're most exciting is just the sheer level of talent. You get to watch Robert Moore. You get to watch Casey Ovitz. You get to watch Jalen Battles and Christian Franklin. And, you know, Jackson Wiggins is blowing smoke at the back of the bullpen. And everyone's very excited about what Payne Paulette has, the kind of step forward he's taken this year. And, and you have just a lot of exciting things about the Razorbacks. You also have a team that has played an inordinate amount of close games. And that's the other reason why they're really exciting, because on in four straight weeks to open the season, their first game of the week, whether it happened on Saturday, as was the case on opening weekend, or on Thursday, as was the case the next week, or Friday, the last two weeks, they have needed late comebacks. And that's great. I love it as a viewer. It was very exciting to watch them come back against La Tech. And, you know, honestly, I, I don't know how to run the numbers on this. Maybe I'll figure it out over the next couple of weeks. Robert Moore sure looks like the most clutch player in the country. He, every time in every one of these comebacks, Robert Moore, I swear, has been doing something incredible. And so that's really cool to watch. I love it. But if you're looking at it and you're looking at how you're going to go through the SEC play, doing that on a Friday night in the SEC, that is no way to go through life. You are not going to win games like that. You might win some. You probably will win some. That. It, it happens. You have you have the horses, you have the clutch players to do it. But if you think that going up against, you know, once Doug Nikhazy is healthy on Friday night and with that Ole Miss bullpen, that you can just leave something late or, you know, look at Mississippi State, Christian McLeod, that, you know, Landon Sims, whoever Mississippi State wants to run out of the bullpen, the million arms Texas A&M has at their disposal. Uh, you know, I, I just don't, that's not a sustainable, realistic way that you win a whole bunch of ball games in the SEC. So that has to get corrected. I don't really know how they go about doing that because this is not a team that's built to, that's built like other teams in the SEC. Actually, in this, in this one respect, Alabama without prelip and Arkansas are both built pretty similarly. They're starting, their starting. Their pitching staffs are not built around getting seven innings out of three guys. They're built around getting good starts, and then whenever they notice guys are faltering, getting them out, getting the next arm in. Both of them are going to employ that this weekend. Uh, you know, I don't know who's. Yeah, you, you have to give Arkansas the edge on the mound. They run incredibly deep. They've done it to this point, but you know, I don't know that they have a huge edge on the mound. Uh, and if you gave Alabama prelip back, I, I, I might well tell you that Alabama had the edge on the mound. So it's going to be interesting to watch how both teams manage their pitching staffs. I, you know, I like Arkansas because Arkansas doesn't lose at home. And, you know, again, they have found a way to be incredibly clutch this season. Uh, at some point, though, they got to get Christian Franklin going. They got to get Matt Goodhart going and they got to find a way 
to get through a Friday night without, you know, needing some sort of late comeback. Maybe that's this week. Maybe it's next week. I don't know, but at some point it's going to catch up to them and they're going to lose, they're going to lose games if they, if they keep leaving things until late. Here's, here's the thing too. Like, let's, let's say what we know about the Arkansas pitching staff. They throw volume at you hundred um, percent. Peyton Paulette has been a revelation as far as, as being a starter goes. And I'll be interested to see if they try to stretch him out a little more, if they're, or if they're just comfortable with him being a guy who can dominate for four or five innings. If he's, if he's on uh, the velocity is great. They might lead the country in average fastball velocity, but if, if they had to run this pitching staff out in Omaha started tomorrow, would you trust this group? No. Yeah. See, I'm not sure either because I like, I, wouldn't. I mean, like if I, Maybe Mississippi State is on the mind right now because I recently talked with uh, Nick Suss about this today. But, you know, just think about what Mississippi State has with Christian McLeod. I mean, Sarantola and Bednar haven't really locked in yet, but in, in their stead, they found Jackson Fristo, who has been incredible as a freshman. They've discovered that Landon Sims can give you four electric innings out of the bullpen at a, at a clip. And then they have, you know, so many other relievers. It's not, this is not that. Well, then you start to like, even when you, you look at it, I mean, having the good stuff is, is great, but you know, they've got a number of guys who they're, they're giving consistent innings whose ERAs are above five and ERA is not everything. You have to look at some peripherals and a lot of these peripherals are pretty good because of the strikeout numbers, but you know, their strikeout to walk ratio is not that high above two to one on this pitching staff. So there's probably a few more walks than they would ultimately like. Um, And again, you know, well, it's been great. But after that, like Lyle Lockhart, I have to admit, like Lyle Lockhart has actually been better than I, than I thought. Now we'll see what happens in, in SEC play. Um, Cause I think that's my question is like, is, is Lyle Lockhart a guy you have starting on the weekends in, in SEC play? And, and maybe so he's certainly experienced, but I'm with you. I just, I think it's a pitching staff that I, I really like in the abstract and I really like individual pieces, but I, you know, if I was going into the college world series tomorrow, I, I would have, I think, a little bit of a hard time trusting the group as it's currently constructed. I, I, I think that's fair. Um, I, I think that it's one of the more talented ones in the country, at least in terms of pure stuff. I think they'll work into it. But no, if, you, if, we, were, if we were walking into Omaha tomorrow, first of all, that would be weird. Uh, but second of all, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't. I would not feel like Arkansas, despite the fact that they are the number one team in the country. I, I don't think that I would have them as my favorite team. Uh, just because they're they're playing too many close games. I just at the end of the day, like you can't keep needing comebacks. And it's not like it's not like the okay opening day you need to come back against Texas Tech. Cool, I get it. But then like what happened against Semo and Murray State? Why I get that there's a target on your back. You're Arkansas, and what for Murray State at least, and for La Tech you had the number one team also targeted. Uh, you, you know, another target because you were, you had the number one next to your name, but it's, uh, it's got to get firmed up here, uh, sooner than later. And this weekend would be a great weekend to start it because, you know, again, Alabama is a similar team. Alabama is a younger offense that doesn't have a ton of sec experience because of what happened last year. And, uh, you know, you get them at home. So maybe this is a, a chance to, to get a little bit right a chance to get a nice SEC winning weekend under your belt and build from there. Uh, but at the same time, I, I, I do think Alabama has to walk into this series and, and have some confidence that like, okay, Murray state and SEMO and La Tech and Texas tech, they all, 
they all really gave Arkansas everything they could handle. Uh, why can't we do that too? Can you imagine if they made us start the College World Series tomorrow? The low in Omaha tomorrow is 26. Can you imagine if they made us start the College World Series? I mean, that would really change the game. You want to talk about that, that, that ballpark not being great for offense. Imagine trying to play in it and, you know, temperatures in the 30s and low 40s. It'd be a whole different, whole different deal there. It, it absolutely would be. All right, Joe, those were my picks. Uh, let's get to your pick. Okay, I thought you might choose one of these, not because they're necessarily like um, huge, like show-stopping series, but because it would be a jumping off point to talk about something specific. So I'm, I'm glad you didn't, because uh, I did have a back of a mind, but I was not as excited about my, uh, my backup there. Um, sorry about that, Samford and UNC Greensboro. Uh, good SOCON series, but I'd rather talk about these two. Uh, so it's two series, but it's, it's more of a jumping off point here. Uh, Big West play, uh, Long Beach State uh, going to Hawaii and Cal Poly going to uh, our friend Dave Serrano in Cal State Northridge. Um, obviously Long Beach and CSUN are two of the teams that we know least about and not just because they haven't played. Also because they had just uh, a difficult time, let's say, getting on the field in the fall and, you know, kind of getting things going in the preseason and they're playing conference only schedules. And so I don't think either of us, this is not going to be one of these series previews where we're going to be able to do super deep dive breakdowns on this because I just don't think we know what we're going to see here. And so that's, I think, just on the base level, what's interesting about these is um, we're, we're not sure exactly what we're going to get, and we probably won't fully know after one weekend. Although it, it is interesting, it, you know, maybe a little bit of a longer lead up to the season and, and all that stuff. Maybe it puts these teams in a little better advantage to come out in relative midseason form. But I think you can also say a similar thing about Hawaii, by the way. They went to Arizona State first week in the season, and, you know, not surprising, lost that Second series. Weekend, actually. Second weekend, thank you. Yes. After not being on the field the first weekend. Uh, and lost that series, as you would have expected. But uh, since then, they've played, you know, uh, a couple of uh, teams on the islands, uh, Division II schools. So they've, they've won those games, obviously. But I think we can kind of say a similar thing about Hawaii because it's been just that one window against good competition. So, uh, you know, these four teams, Cal Poly, the one we know the most about, and you wrote about them uh, on Off the Bat. So you're, you're familiar with all that. But um, I'm just – I'm happy to see these teams get on the field first and foremost, but other than that, I am kind of interested to see what, what they're going to look like because um, we, we don't really know. And Long Beach in particular is a team that, you know, obviously looked really good last season. They've lost some pieces, but, you know, I'm curious to see if they keep that ball rolling or if this year ends up being kind of just a tough year for COVID reasons and roster reasons and everything else. Yeah. Long Beach and Northridge both were off to great starts last year. I think they're, both were like 10 and five beach was getting more attention because they'd beaten wake and Cal and um, Mississippi state uh, Northridge hadn't played quite that level of competition, uh, but still was, was playing very, very well and, and better than anticipated. And then, yeah, they had no fall. They, they didn't do anything this fall. They are playing conference only this spring. So we have, we have, nothing to go on to this point. And effectively with Hawaii, I feel like we have nothing like the reports coming out of what they did against Arizona state were like, okay, yeah, it's a good team, but it was their first weekend of, of play. And, you know, it's against Arizona state and, you know, who knows. And then they, you know, basically have been in a black box over the last two weeks. I, I have no idea what to make of games against, you know, the, the local D2 teams in, in Hawaii. So 
I, that that Long Beach Hawaii series is fascinating. I think that the Warriors can be pretty good this year. I, I I like the talent that's there. I think they can compete in the Big West. I that was my preseason read uh, on them. I think Long Beach can absolutely should be able to do the same thing and at a higher level. But you know what is whatever has happened over the last year, what is that going to mean to the dirtbags? We have no reasonable way of knowing. I think the Matadors are in for a tough weekend. Now, when I talked with um, with Cal Poly coach Larry Lee last week after they beat UCLA, I, I asked him about starting Big West play. And, you know, this is very much front of mind for him because he has to play CSUN this weekend. But he said it could go one of two ways. It could be that we have the advantage, like, look, we've played games. They haven't. So we have, we're, we're coming in, we've had a chance to work out some things, see what we've got. And, you know, guys have worked into, you know, somewhat of a mid-season form. You know, Brooks Lee, his son is is hitting 440 and has looked spectacular. Uh, and he's really benefited from being able to, you know, get some games under his belt after last season, not being able to play at all, basically due to a knee injury. Um, you know, so that, that's, uh, that, that's, that's one big advantage Cal Poly has, but the advantage CSUN has is that there is no film on them. They have, they can watch film on, on the Mustangs. The Cal Poly has no film to watch on CSUN and, you know, they have, they're going to be fresh. They, they have, they, they have no games under their belt, which means that again, they haven't been able to work through some of this stuff, but it also means they aren't going to come and dig up. So I don't know which way that. I, I, I would think that you would prefer to have played games, that that's the advantage here. Uh, but there is, a, there is something to be said for, for coming into this fresh uh, and, and for coming into this as a little bit more of a mystery. So my, my sense is that, you know, I, I've said what I've said about Cal Poly, that I think that they might be the favorites in the Big West. So, I mean, you know what I think of, of that series. But uh, the other one is, is wide open. You know, Long Beach having to travel makes it tricky as well. Uh, but the, that, that one is, is going to be a very interesting one to watch. And frankly, I'm just glad that we'll have Hawaii baseball to keep us company late at night, because, uh, that's always nice when, when you're writing, uh, on, on a Friday or a Saturday night and you look up and it's like midnight on the East coast and like, Oh yeah. I mean, the Warriors, they're playing. It's fine. It is kind of nice. I, I, uh, some of it is cause I obviously am not paying attention to the Hawaii program day to day, but I do find it sometimes kind of confusing as to which games I can watch of theirs and which ones I can't, like, I can't always get a read on why sometimes I go to like find their game and watch it. And I, and I can't, and there's sometimes when I can, and um, maybe I'm misremembering how often that's happened to me, but it does feel like it is a thing that has happened to me where I'm like, why, why is this one not letting me, letting me do this? So I, I am holding out hope more often than not. I am able to, to catch Hawaii when I'm, when at that hour, I am not looking at the back of my eyelids sleeping. You are, right about Hawaii, like kind of a, clearly it's, it's a pitching first program more often than not. Um, and I think that will probably continue to be the case, but like, it, it is like an offense that is at least pretty veteran, you know, a lot of names you recognize here, like chief among them, Scotty Scott. I mean, come on, he's a, a, an all nameless guy, but Dustin Demeter, Adam Fogel, Cole Kaler, those are guys who've been in this program for a long time. On the mound, Aaron Davenport has been really good, and he was really good against Arizona State. So it's not just numbers that are being propped up because they were playing Hawaii Pacific and Hawaii Hilo. He was good against Arizona State as well, and my goodness, that head of hair. Have you seen Aaron Davenport's hair? 
I have. It's it's, it's uh, a thing of beauty. It's great flow. It looks like. Um, do you remember like the? I think it was like a '90s thing, and I'm a few years older than you, so maybe it is it one of those things where it just. But do, are you familiar with Fabio? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like uh, it's hair reminiscent of Fabio. Like it's just it's golden. It's super shiny, like shiny in a good way, not shiny like oily, <laughs> like shiny in a good way. And like it just looks like the wind in that hair would just be a thing of beauty. So I, I'm as someone who is basically almost bald. Let's be honest. I am extremely jealous of that head of hair. It is uh, it is impressive. I am glad that the Big West is uh, is going to get into some Big West action this weekend. I, I think there are a lot of intriguing series out there. I, I still, I mean, I know the conference hasn't started well, but I still feel good about the idea that it could be a pretty competitive race. Uh, you know, and initially I said it would be a pretty competitive race behind Santa Barbara, and now uh, I think the whole thing might just be pretty competitive. So we'll uh, we'll see where that one goes, and um, an intriguing. Uh, intriguing couple intriguing matchups to watch that are highlighted by Joe. That's going to do it for us today on the Baseball America College podcast. We have plenty of content to come throughout the weekend over at baseballamerica.com. So I would encourage you to check that out throughout the weekend. We will be back here with another edition of the podcast on Monday, wrapping up that all that action over the weekend. And you can uh, subscribe to the Baseball America podcast on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you're finding your podcasts. Subscribe, and uh, you know we'll we'll keep you company throughout the season, twice a week. Uh, you know with these these preview and these recap podcasts. So we will talk to you next week. Until then, uh, check out the website. Check us out on Twitter. I'm at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We want to thank you all for listening. Thank you to Rap Soto for presenting the podcast. For Joe, I'm Teddy. We'll talk to you next time on the Baseball America College Podcast.